0: So I don't, know, I don't know how your week was, uh, but mine was super interesting. Uh, my wife and I, we got back with our family from a McFadden-level road trip, like back when I was growing up. I remember these road trips where we'd go on these huge multi-state road trip drives that were just fantastic. And we went to DC. It was super, super good. The only thing that was lame in DC was, um, was waking up like at three in the morning. Last couple of nights, how many of you struggle, struggle with insomnia at all? Okay. Um, I struggled with insomnia back when I was in fifth and sixth grade, like hardcore. It was terrible. It was awful. But since then, like once I hit junior high, it was, I, I've been sleeping like a rock ever since until like DC. Uh, for the last two days of the vacation, I would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, just super random. I'm not stressed. I'm not, like, worried about anything. I'm like, am I worried about something? And I'm trying to psychoanalyze it myself, and, which makes you stay up later. And uh, each time it was about an hour, hour or so I was just awake before falling back asleep. And so that happened the first night. That was annoying. The second night, it was super annoying. But I thought, it, you know, surely when I get back to my house and I'm in my own bed, then I'll be able to sleep calmly, like I normally do, like a rock through the night. So we get back to the house, and, uh, and we're just dead tired from that drive. We came from D.C., and, so, and uh, we're just super, super tired. We get to the house. We have a gourmet meal of cheese and crackers or something. I don't know. So whatever was in the fridge, and, uh, and we just sit, and we just, we're watching a movie. Like, we're watching Harry Potter, and, uh, and you know, having a... a I, I said, you know what? We're gonna, it's cold outside. We're gonna have a little, you know, fire in the fireplace, get a couple of logs, and put them in there. The fire's going, movie's playing, and I look, and, I, and I, my favorite place in the house is sitting right on the fireplace and just have the, the fire, you know, the heat on my back. And I'm, I'm looking in my room, my living room. There's my son, Micah. He just came back from, from three months in, in Haiti. And I was just like, there's my son. There's Carson. On the, on the carpet is, is Rylan and Cohen, and Julie's on the chair over here. And I just looked over at Julie, and I just had one of those weird dad moments where you say things that are, seem deep at the time, but kind of creep everyone out. Like, And I just said, This is just so good so good which everyone's like okay (laughs) fire goes out we chill out for about two hours after the fire went out fire went out about eight o'clock we everyone kind of goes up to bed around 10 um, get the kids in bed I'm, I'm walking around and checking the doors and turn off the lights and go over to the fireplace no you know no embers or fire going make sure that the gas is off it's off and head upstairs and, uh, go, and go to bed. And um, it's about 10.30 or so. Julie and I probably crash because we're super, super tired. And um, a- again, at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's like, what's the deal? Like, seriously, I am not an insomniac. I am not an insomniac, but I'm becoming an insomniac. And so at 3 o'clock in the morning, I wake up and, and I'm just like frustrated with the fact that I'm still... I'm awake, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to buckle up for an hour of just being awake. This is so pointless. As I'm laying there in bed, I'm just kind of like thinking through the fact that, man, it sounds like there's wind hitting the house on the outside. We're on the second floor, and our our bedroom butts up against the north wall of our house, and uh, and I'm just, it sounds like, you know, dust particles hitting the house, you know? So I'm like, okay, it's windy. Maybe that'll lull me into sleep. And I'm just, as I'm laying there, I, I smell something. You know, it smells like just a little bit smoky. I mean, it's not like hardcore oppressive smoke, but it's like, like, like a campfire smell. And, and I'm like, well, we did have a fire, but, you know, it just something wasn't sitting right. So I grabbed my phone, and I walked downstairs, and I just put the flashlight on. I'm just like, well, I'm not even, I don't even want to turn on lights. I'm just tired. and I'm tired that I'm tired. I'm tired that I'm insomniac. That, again, why is it that God's not keeping me, go to, you know, sleep through the whole night? Why is it I've got to wake up at 3? And I'm walking to the kitchen, and I look around. There's not smoke. It's just, again, just a little smoky smell. And I look over at the fireplace thinking maybe like the fire reignited, you know, on on some old wood or something. There's no fire in the fireplace. So bizarre. And then I look back at the fireplace and I realize that there's like this thin line of orange right by the mantle, like this wooden mantle. And I'm like, is my mantle on fire? That's so weird. And I walk on over and I realize that my mantle is not on fire. I was actually seeing this, this golden light of orange, like just about a half inch in in height and just about that far wide, and I realized I wasn't looking at a fire on my mantle. I was looking through my wall, and that there was a fire inside of the wall of my house. And all of a sudden, I flip. And I just start yelling, "Julie, Julie, Julie, get the kids out of the house! Julie, get the kids out! There's a fire in the house! There's a fire in the house! Julie's upstairs, just going, oh, the kids, your dad's overreacting again.' <laughs> just, just come on, he does this, you know him. Come on!" And and so she's starting to get the kids out of bed, and I'm like calling 911, and I'm like, and I'm like, uh, like "Do you have an emergency?" I'm like, "I think so. There's a." fire in my uh, wall, in your fireplace, no, not my fireplace, I think it's in the wall, it's not on the mantel. I don't, Julie, get the kids out of the house, come on, kids, come on, and she's getting them downstairs, like, where's Cohen, where's, and they don't know where Cohen is, because Cohen decided to not sleep like a human being, in a bed, on top of a bed, but do this weird, you know, paranormal activity, like, movement all around his bed, and like, sleep underneath it or something, then they see his legs, and they get him, and they get him downstairs, halfway down the stairs is when the smoke alarms go off, not Before. Because the smoke wasn't in the house, the smoke was in the walls and in the attic where the fire was. And I'm like, in this moment, as I'm trying to like, like blurt out like seven twelve Joanne Drive, and uh, yes, yeah, fi- fire in the wall. And I'm like, I'm, I, you know, I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can stop this fire, I can do this, and you know how I did it? With this. I found a vase, and I filled it with water. As I'm yelling at my wife, get the kids out of the house! And I'm calling 712. Yeah, I don't know when it started. We had a fire earlier. Yes, yeah, so there was a fire earlier. And then I'm running across. I don't know. I don't know how it started. We had a fire, but I don't know, there wasn't a fire. Julie, get the kids out of the house! I'm doing this over and over and over again, not realizing what was happening outside. Julie gets out, and that again, that's about when the smoke alarms go off, and I look up, and I just as I look up, I get hit with this wave of smoke. And I've i you know, when you're around campfire, and it gets in your eyes and it's annoying, all of a sudden it's just this all-encompassing cloud. And it's just like it's the creepiest looking thing, billowing and just and hits me from like this part of my stomach all the way up to the ceiling, and it's just solid. And the, so now the smoke alarms are going off. And now Julie's got out of the house. And she's like, Errol, get out of the house! She's yelling from outside, Get out of the house! Just get out of the house! You've got to get out of the house! I've got a phone in my hand, I've got a vase in my other, and I'm in my boxers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I can't go outside like this. What would the neighbors think? They'd be so jealous of all you. I mean, so, I, so I sprinted upstairs as fast as I could. I got on, I'm like, just grabbed like a pair of pants and, and a hoodie, and I go outside. I don't have any shoes, and it's freezing outside, but my adrenaline's pumping so hard I don't even know. And I, I get out there, and I walk around. You know in the fall when you have a bonfire, and like you're sitting at the bonfire, and you're like looking around at all the houses around the bonfire, and it's like that awesome orange glow? I'll never look at that the same way. Because I come out of my house, and I see the glow in all my neighbors' houses. And I turn the corner, and I see this. The most surreal moment, I just look and see, that's my house. It's the north side of my house burning. That, like, brilliant flame is right where my bedroom is. And I'm watching as the fire is getting into the attic, and now it's going over right over where my children were sleeping. And the police department, man, amazing. They get Julie and the kids in, in a patrol car and get them down the street. I can't get in the patrol car because I've got to watch. I got to wait for the fire department. I'm watching my house burn. And they got. We have the most amazing first responders in this community. And let me just say, if you live in Manuka, you can be assured that if you have a fire, not only will Manuka show up, but about every fire engine in Illinois will be there. <laughs> Our street look like a parade, and they show up. And again, it felt, like, it felt like an eternity. It was probably about four minutes, and it, but every second I'm watching this fire climb and I'm just praying, dear God, our, our kids are safe, but dear God, help us not jump to our neighbor's house. Our neighbors are still sleeping. And so they get there and they just do an amazing job. They get in the house and when the fire's out and after you finish talking with the people that are you know, the fire inspectors and everything, you go out there and just a couple hours later and you look. And just see the damage of what was going on. I had the opportunity to walk through the house for the first time before Julie and the kids and you had a chance to look in our bedroom. I just realized the damage that took place. And I realized this was going to be really painful for my wife when she walked through. This is her home. I mean, this is, this is our home. And you know, if you're a parent, you know what your house looks like when it's a wreck. But when it's got like burnt, like insulation on the ground everywhere, it's weird. And so I walked her in and, said, and said, Julie, you've got to come see our bedroom. And she comes and she looks at that and she just goes, I always wanted a skylight right about there. <laughs> That's what I knew I think we were going to be okay. But you had to laugh because if you didn't, you are going to cry. Because the devastation was just so significant. Looking at what took place. The irony of ironies is what I was going to preach on this weekend um, was giving up my control for Lent. And it really had a lot more to do with this passage. We've been going through Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, and we're going to be focusing in on that passage right there in the middle, verse 18. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And so it's like basically instead of like if you get wasted or if you get stoned or if you get, you know, you're super lit, you are, you're not, you don't have all the capacity to listen to what God wants you to do. And so instead of being overcome and mastered by a substance, if you're going to turn over control to something, don't turn it over to a substance, turn it over to the spirit. And I had no idea how pertinent that passage was, but only in context with the rest of what took place right before and after it. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not unwise, but as wise. Making the most of most opportunities. Making the most of good opportunities. Making the most of opportunities that that actually help you out when things are going as planned. No. Making the most of what? Every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. We live in a messed up world, so you gotta be wise. We live in a world where things break and things go wrong and things fall apart and things burn and things die and things break apart. Because things are so messed up, you cannot limit your sobriety to be conscientious of what's going on because if you do, you're gonna miss out on the opportunity that God is putting right before you to follow his lead and keep your eyes wide open at what he's doing even in the midst of this tragedy. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, which is exactly what Julie and I did. As we we're watching our house burn, we said, Let's sing. No. Look what he says in the next verse. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So it's right there. <laughs> Always giving thanks to God the Father for the things in my plan. Always giving thanks to God the Father for the homes that never burn, the marriages that never break. Always giving thanks to God the Father. For the conditions that always stay in our favor. Always giving thanks to God the Father for what? Everything. For real? How can you say that? Because everything isn't praiseworthy. Everything isn't something that God is saying, that's what I love. I love to see the house burn, the marriage break up, the rape, the molestation. How can Paul say always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's because when we're talking about giving up something, it's more than just control to the Holy Spirit. It's really giving up our security and our sense of self-security. The cool thing about Ephesians, well, the cool thing about Paul's writing, that, that God inspired his words that we, we get to have recorded in the Bible, is that we get a chance to hear Paul do what your uncle or your, your dad probably does when he's telling stories. Repeats himself right? And so Paul says something in a letter to this church, and then there's similar stuff, but just a little bit different to a letter in another church. So it's cool to see them come together. This passage that we've been going through for the past several weeks, Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, there's a parallel passage, and it's Romans 8. See, Ephesians 4 to 5 is life in the Spirit. Romans 8 is all about life in the Spirit as well. It's all about the security and the happiness of a follower of Jesus. And so if you're following in your notes, first off, turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. We're gonna be in the chapter of Romans 8 today. On your phone, get a Bible in the back. You're gonna wanna be there. But in your notes, as a follower of Jesus, we can understand security, where it comes from, how to experience it, and how to enjoy it, even in difficult times. Because whether or not you're in here right now and you're in elementary school, some of you are in elementary school in here, or you're like eight years into retirement, I can promise you one thing without shadow of a doubt, you're going to experience tragedy from this point on you may have already experienced trauma and tragedy but whether you're in elementary school or you're 8 years into retirement you're going to experience difficulty and tragedy at some point between now and when you see Jesus face to face so how does a believer how does a believer operate in a way that you can actually walk through life and not be destroyed by things but you can actually deal you can actually cope with it in a way that's, that's above and beyond. And actually, it's the very thing that Paul is talking to us about. Chapter 8 in Romans follows chapter 7, which is how it works. Chapter 7 is something really cool because paul it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible because you hear Paul saying, you know, here's the thing. There's things that I want to do. I want to follow God. And guess what? Right when I want to follow God, I end up follow, go do, disobeying him. Right when I want to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing. Why am I so messed up? And he gets to the end of the chapter and says, what a wretched person I am. Basically, how could anyone love me? Look, people love me because they know me about some things, but if they knew the real me, if they knew my real thoughts or my real actions or the thing that I did back then, if they knew that, they would distance themselves from me because I would distance myself from me if I could. What a wretched person I am. How is there any hope for me? And he finishes Romans 7 by saying, thanks be to God. We are rescued through Jesus Christ. And then he gets into chapter eight. Chapter eight's where it starts to get awesome, where the drumbeat starts to beat. We're a Christian security. How can we go through the worst that this life has? And it starts off with saying that our security has nothing to do with our circumstances, our condition, the state of our house or our marriage. Has nothing to do, our security, our ultimate security has nothing to do with any of these circumstances. Security itself starts off with a self-awareness of forgiveness. See, because after Paul just rips himself apart in chapter 7, finishing off saying, no one really would love me, but thanks be to God that Jesus does, he's, in a, basically, I've condemned myself. Everyone else should condemn me. He says this at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, zero condemnation, zero condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned f- sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, you are stru- your insecurity, the lack of security, your insecurity does not start with the fact that you can't find a date. Your, your lack of security does not come from the fact that you can't get the promotion you want or you don't earn enough money or your family's coming apart at the seams. That is not where your insecurity starts. Your insecurity starts with the fact that you still feel like you're living in condemnation even though Jesus has forgiven you. You're condemning yourself. And every single one of us does this. Coming out of the fire... Um, it was one of those things where McFadden's, McFadden's, we deal with uh, grief. You know, there's like five stages of grief, you know, like denial and anger, and then finally you get to acceptance. We just whoosh, to the last stage of grief and we accept it. And then we say, we missed out on so much. Let's walk back here. And we start going through all the other stages of grief in, in retroactive ways. It's just, it's dumb, but that's what we do. So coming out of the fire, our first recognition, we are all safe, thanks Thanks be to God that we're saved. Thanks be to God that he woke me up at three in the morning. Thanks be to God that, that, that we have first responders, that the fire didn't spread to other homes. Thanks be to God that we live in a country that insists on the stupidity of insurance, which is so dumb, until you need it. And, then all the, and thanks be to God that we have an amazing church who has been like, you have held us up in prayers. And I gotta tell you, we, we, you don't know that you're the power of prayer until you're in a situation that you need to be prayed for and you know people are praying for you and you can feel it, you can sense it. That even in the midst of the garbage and everything, God's carrying you through. So we're like, we're like on the embracing point. We're like, this is all God's glory. We're so grateful to him for all that he has done. We've embraced it. But then, as we're taking piggyback steps, or at least I'm taking piggyback steps back into the other stages of grief, there's this weird nagging thing in my head. And it's condemnation. And I've been like, as soon as it surfaces in my head, I try to get it out of my head. It's like, just distract myself or, or whatever. And this week has been a blitz of stuff, so it's been easy to distract myself. But Julie and I, we're, we're in bed. We wake up um, one morning, and, and Julie's like, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? If I had a nickel every time. Throughout my life, I heard that. I, we would not need insurance. Um, so what's going on? And I was just silent because I, I didn't want to talk. I didn't, know what the, I didn't know what to say. I, just, I didn't know what's wrong. I don't know what's wrong with me. But I started to, to talk and I just said, Julie, I just, this is my fault. And it came so close to taking our family. What are you talking about? Julie, I was the one who made the fire, I started the fire in our fireplace. Why did I have to do that? Like, why did I I have to have a fire? Like, we could have just come back. We could have just chilled out. It could have been an awesome evening. I could have gone to sleep. Why did I do that? This is my fault. And it came so close. Taking all of you away. She said, Errol, it's not your fault. Fire inspector said that it, there, was a, there was a fault in the firebox that an ember got through a crack or something and was there in, in, the, in the chimney back behind the wall and just sat there for hours and then ultimately eventually just lit on fire and lit the chimney up and everything else. It's not your fault. I'm like, Julie, I know what you're saying and I get that. I know what they said. That's great they said that, but I still feel, I still feel that nagging thing in my head is this is your fault. Then Julie said something to me that I'll never, ever forget. This is incredibly powerful. She said to me, Errol, it's not your fault and I forgive you. But even if it was your fault, I forgive you. The power of forgiveness is it lets someone know This happened, but we're still together. Forgiveness that Paul is talking about is this. Jesus is not looking at us and saying, It's not your fault. Jesus is actually looking at us and the things that we are most ashamed of and says, I see this, this thing that you did and I hate it. I'm not looking past it. I'm not covering my eyes and saying, if if I just keep my eyes shut, and I look at you, and I don't even think about that, that I could finally love you, and we could have a relationship. He's not saying that. He's actually saying, no, the blinders are off. I'm looking you right in the eye, and I'm looking right into your soul. I know what you did. I saw it. I knew what you were thinking before, it, and I've seen everything that's taking place after it, and I see that, and I hate it, but I love you. And I love you so much that I'm willing to sacrifice myself to take this hate, this guilt that that I've got between us, to take this away from you and put it on me. I'm taking the stuff that you've done, and I'm going to own it. And I took care of it for you on the cross. Not so that you could continue to walk in condemnation and shame, but so that you could actually walk secure. You are secure. We're good. The person who matters most in this world, we have security with because of the cross. Amen? Your security does not start with your lack or the things that happen. Security doesn't start with, with being shored up. Security starts, if you're a Christian, with the fact that you can be self-aware that you're forgiven. And nothing can change that. Not only is security starting with the self-awareness of forgiveness, but it also is experienced through the reordering of foundation. Paul then goes right into the next verse. He goes into in verse 5. He says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh See, a person like you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can be someone who's forgiven. And you're like, man, I'm just so grateful that I'm forgiven. God has forgiven all of my sins. And so like, I I know, I know that I can experience that, that life with him. But the truth is, is that, What Paul is saying here is that there's an aspect of a human heart that still wants to root our salvation and our security and stuff that is not of the Spirit. It's not of who Jesus is and his forgiveness in us. And so what we end up doing is we take good things and we make them ultimate things, like relationships. Are relationships evil? No, they're a gift from God. Whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship or a relationship with your family, relationships can be so good. And, and they're like, they're, again, they, they, again, whether you're single or you're married or whatever, or you're a grandparent, whatever, relationships are amazing. They're good. Health. Health is not a bad thing, right? Health is Being healthy is a good thing. In fact, if you're, if you're pursuing health and you're trying to, to exercise, and learn, that's all good stuff. Health is great all of us in here know that health is something that deteriorates though and that's one of the frustrations with, with all of us as we get older is like what aspects of health that start to deteriorate deteriorate stuff the stuff that we own stuff that we buy for our house is it evil or good It's fine. and There's nothing wrong with stuff. You owning a car, that's not evil. That's not sinful. You owning a house or getting a paycheck or anything, being able to give presents to people on Christmas, not bad. That's all good. The thing is that what oftentimes we do is we make this the thing that we root all of our security on. This becomes what makes us feel safe and secure. Why am I safe and secure? Well, I'm in a relationship. Why am I safe and secure? Well, I, I, I'm able to draw a paycheck and I'm relatively healthy right now. That's why I'm safe and secure. And if I'm safe and secure, well then, as a Christian, I can just praise God because God is so good. He's given me each of these things. I am one secure dude. God is so good. God is so good. Why? Well, I mean, just look. I mean, God is so good. Like. Seriously, I don't know what I would do without these things. Thank you. I, I worship you. I praise you because you are so, so, so good. I'm a secure person until these things get disrupted. And then our security falls. The next thing that we're realizing, where were you, where were you on that one? Like I thought what God was good. But that happened to me. This does not go together anymore in my life. How could I even trust a God like that? My security is junk. Now some of you, as you're watching this, you're like, well, Errol, you're dumb. You did it wrong. See, no one would actually put all their eggs in their basket, or if they do, they're really, really, really stupid. The reality is, is that the Christian life, or at least the wise Christian life, is one of balance. That's what we should do. We should be a balanced type of person. Because if we're going to have these things in life that that all of us obviously depend upon for our security, it's not putting them all together. It's actually finding a way to balance in the midst of them. Okay, that's a little too far away. And so the the ordering of the Christian life is one of balance. If I'm going to have things that I'm going to rely on, I just need to have proper balance. It's like Jenga, but with my life. And, And the cool thing is this, is that if I've got proper balance... Everything is good, and as a Christian, again, I am affirming the reality that God is good. And this works until it doesn't. Because what ends up happening is, this is life never stays stable. Something will take place. But it's cool. See, this is why, Errol, you're dumb. I, my security is still rock solid. I only had one thing drop out, which is true, except for in life, it's never just one thing, right? Because you could be like still rocking on two pegs of this security thing, and all it takes is one more thing to go. And your security is toast, and you're wondering where is a good God? If God was good, he would never have let that happen. My security is trashed. Paul says that a life of the flesh cannot Please God, it's hostile God, and there's zero peace. Why is there zero peace? Because we're built around these things. But then he says that that's not how you are. In fact, as a Christian, you don't order your life that way. You reorder your foundation differently. Instead of your life being built and based on those things that are insecure to be our security, we start off with the fact that God is good. That is our foundation. That is where we draw our security from. And so, if that's the case then as our life has things like relationships, we thank God for relationships. As our God has things like stuff, we're we're drawing a paycheck, we're able to provide for our family or whatever, rock on, that's great. Health, super, super good, thankful for that. But the cool thing is, is that the Christian life, the life of the Spirit, recognizes that life has a tendency to do this, How's my security? There goes the house. Just had one fire, and it's gone. How's my security? And even... How's my security? As a Christian, I recognize that these things can add to my feeling of security... But as a Christian, if they're gone, they can never be taken away. My security is never taken away because this is here or out. I love having each one of these things in my life. But a proper ordering of our foundation says they can add to my feeling of security. But as a Christian, they can never take away from my ultimate security. Because that's rooted not in those things, but is rooted in the fact that God is good. Amen? So basically, when we're looking at a right foundation, it's this. Who God is and what he's already done. Why is it important for us to worship God in song? Why is it important for us to be in God's word? Because we're washing over our brain this reality, this foundation, because life will have a tendency to kick out from under us the things that we are insecure about or that we're putting our security in that are insecure. You want to know what your idols are? When something happens to you, what it makes you freak out the most about? What makes you lose it? Because what this is is the ability for a Christian to say life is going to chuck awful things our way, traumatic things our way. But there's a difference between discouragement and depression and being decimated. As a Christian, we don't have to be decimated. We will be discouraged. Life will be difficult, but it won't destroy us. It won't destroy us because these things never were our foundation, that is. Security is a reordering of our foundation. Security is also enjoyed by knowing that even this, even this, whatever I'm going through, even this is future glorious. Paul gets to this one of the, the best parts of this whole passage when he says this. He says, I consider that our present this is verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings, the stuff we're going through right now, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation awaits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of glory and glory of the children of God. And then Paul does this thing. Paul wasn't married. He didn't have any kids, but he uses like pregnancy as a, as a word picture. He's kind of like, you know how like um, when, when someone's giving birth, They've experienced pain. And back then, they didn't have drugs. And so, like, it was like pain. It's like, so this is, a a childbirth is painful. It's painful. There's not a single woman that I've ever met that said, you know what was the best moment of my life? The pain before the kid was born. Not one. They're always like, and then he came, and I heard the voice. It was, like, amazing. It was There's never, no one's like, I wish I could experience that pain forever. Not one. Now, no one's going to say that pain is so good. But people will say that pain is goodish because it's leading to something great. It's tolerable, not because it's tolerable pain, but because it's leading to the birth of your child. Now, we we know from Scripture that the pain, any pain in life, but the pain of childbirth specifically, is a result of the fall. So it's not like God's like, yeah, I'm all for pain. It's a result of the fall. But what God is saying is this, this pain isn't a period at the end of the sentence. It's leading to something great. And so Paul is like, it, like our whole life is, is future glorious. We can look at whatever we're going through and say, this is childbirth. This is not pleasant. This is not good. And it's bad. It is bad. But God is the one who's, who could take this. Which leads us to 828, which is one of the worst, poorly ripped out of context verses that Christians use when they're trying to help someone who's hurting and they chuck it in their face. They say this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. See, if you're hurting or you're experiencing a trauma or a tragedy, oftentimes Christians want to help you out. And So what they'll say is, God's got a purpose for this. It's all good. Just put on a smile. I don't know why you automatically go southern when you're talking like it, but that's what happens. (laughs) This is what you do. God's got a purpose for everyone in it, so it's all good. This is good. Just look at this as good. No. This is not good. This is bad. And the thing that we have to realize is this. There is no bad thing that God won't transform into an ultimate good result for those who have been restored by him. You can look at the disease, the difficulty in your marriage, the difficulty in your family, the difficulty with your relationships, your friendships, your health, whatever, and you could say, I, I'm going to be honest, this is not good. This is bad. I can call it out as bad. I don't have to put a Christian smile on my face like, well, I'm just waiting for God's blessing. It's bad. The house fire, bad. Bad. The disease, bad, all of it, bad. But there is no bad thing that God won't transform into an ultimate good result for those who have been restored by him. That means that you can actually go through and you can say, each one of the things that I'm going through, even this, even this, even if I've got a hand in the problematic reality of this, even this is future glorious. Listen to what he says. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Basically, another way, a better way of saying that is God works through all things for the good of those who love him called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Predestined means it's hardwired. It's fixed. If you're in Christ, no matter what you're going through right now, you have a destiny of glory that's fixed. You can't undo it. You can't be disqualified from it. It's, whatever you're going through, it's fixed to ultimately have a good result in, throughout the course of your life. Not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it's fixed that there's going to be glory through this. Even this, even this is future glorious. He says in, in the next verse, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God's for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Verse 35, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, and so should you be, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any other powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is not saying if you're a Christian, life is going to be smooth for you. It won't be. Your house might have the fire, your atheist neighbor might be sitting large and like living large and everything's going great. You might be the one that gets cancer and your neighbor does not. You might be the one who has difficulty with your children. Your neighbor seems like, even though like, they're heathens, they're doing pretty good. God doesn't promise you any of those things to be smooth. He does promise you that nothing, none of those things will ever separate you from his love. You can actually go through life and say, even this, it's not good, it's bad, but even this is future glorious. Church, if you're not experiencing a tragedy right now, you will. You will. It's coming. Will you be blindsided by it? Or are you going to be someone who recognizes that your security starts with the fact that you are forgiven by the one who matters most? That you're someone that actually can order your life around a foundation where God is good and that never ever changes no matter what your security rests on it. Even no matter what life knocks off the top, your foundation is secure. That you can actually be a person who's living out the future glorious reality that even this, even this, even if this is the entirety of my life, the rest of my life, I will struggle with this. Even this is future glorious. And in God's mathematics, all of that adds up to security. You can be the most secure person in the most insecure situation, not because you're so strong or moral or good, because your foundation is so secure. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, for those who are hurting right now, they're currently, their week looks, makes my week look like a, a day in kindergarten. Lord, I pray that you just surround them with your hope and your healing. Give them the reality, the future reality that Paul talks about in this passage. God, for those of us that right now things seem to be pretty good, life is good. But I pray that you don't, help, don't, you don't allow them to be complacent But that they will, in this time of of peace, reorder their foundation and make sure that it's built and based on your goodness and who you are and what you've done and not on any of the things that are so insecure in this life. Lord Jesus, as we live this way and as we navigate tragedies and traumas in our life, Lord, may that be a beacon to a watching world around us that will see you and give you glory. And for that, for that, we will give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. You are dismissed, go with God.